0: From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today, we're gathering up a motley gang of science geeks to talk about some of the biggest stories in science over the past few weeks. We'll be joined by a biomedical researcher, an environmental social scientist, and a biochemist-turned-science communicator to talk about the death of a Mars rover, a fatal fight, and what it's going to take to get female scientists out of the footnotes of history and give them the credit they've always deserved. It's the February Science News Roundup coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Usually on our program, we bring together two researchers. We ask them to tell us about their work, and then we engage them both in a discussion in which we seek to make connections between vastly different fields of study. Today, we're going to continue an experiment that we started a few weeks back. For the second edition of our monthly science news roundup, we'll be joined by three fellow science geeks to take a look at recent science news through a bunch of different perspectives. Joining us on the line is Rachel Kaspar, an evolutionary biologist and biomedical researcher who last joined us on Undisciplined in September to talk about bee behavior. She's just gotten a new job helping study lung cancer microenvironments at the University of Colorado. Rachel, welcome back and congratulations on the new gig.
1: Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me back, too.
0: Also here in studio is Jordan Smith, who we last visited with in November when we were talking about the way bad air moves people around the Mountain West. He's the director of the Institute of Outdoor Recreation and Tourism at Utah State University, where he runs a lab aimed at understanding how humans plan for and adapt to landscapes altered by climate change. Jordan, thanks for coming back to chat. Thanks, Matthew. And finally, making her undisciplined debut is Julie Kiefer. And finally, making her undisciplined debut is Julie Kiefer, a biochemist who spent several years in a research lab before turning her attention to helping people bridge the gap between scientific discovery and public understanding. She is now the manager of science communication at the University of Utah Health Sciences. Hi, Julie, and welcome.
2: Hi, happy to be here.
0: Let's start today on Mars.
3: Seeing you in all the old familiar
0: places. That is the beautiful and unmistakable voice it's of Billy Holiday singing, I'll be seeing you. And if those words alone don't make your eyes a little wet, get ready for this. This song is the last thing that NASA sent to the little Mars rover that could before announcing that opportunity had gone to sleep and was not expected to ever wake up again. But like any good wake, let's not dwell on our loss. Let's talk about what we had, because Opportunity was expected to last 90 Martian days, and it just kept exploring and exploring and exploring for more than 5,000 Martian days. That's 15 long and beautiful Earth years. Gang, I played that song for my daughter last night, and she cried. I might have too. What was your reaction to the news that Opportunity was lost?
2: It's a sad story, of course, but it's such a celebration of accomplishment. I mean, what this robot was able to accomplish far exceeded anybody's expectations. He was supposed to, he, here I go, and I want to talk about that, too. Um, Doesn't NASA
0: she opportunity?
2: You might be right.
0: But please, go ahead.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Little Miss Perfect. Um, What it was able to discover, you know, evidence of water on Mars, um, looking at the Geography of Mars and sort of the historical time uh, through that geography um, was just remarkable. It's sort of this bittersweet ending.
3: It's kind of a, another example of fortuitous, you know, scientific discovery of how kind of complete randomness leads to some amazing benefits for some research and complete disaster for, for others.
1: I thought it was really uh, coincidental that the name was Opportunity because I thought, you know, it's kind of a risky and yet like a perfect name, right? These researchers put so much time and effort into creating opportunity and then having to let it go. <laughs> it definitely hit home in that in that regard as well for me.
0: I think that opportunity by outlasting its first mission really did create opportunity. As Rachel said, this is sometimes the way things go in science. Maybe not often enough, but sometimes we expect to be working on something for just a short time. And then one thing leads to another, which leads to another. Have you guys had experiences like that?
1: I had a coworker, and she—I was supposed to run samples, for example, and uh, she dropped all of the samples on the ground, and actually had to go and recreate everything. By doing that, we were having issues with running the samples on this instrument because it was just uh, the instrument basically didn't like this autofluorescence from these cells, but by Her accidentally dropping all these samples on the ground and having to remake them with cells that we don't normally use, we actually found that the cells that she had to remake the samples with were even better to use on the instrument.
0: Science feels so planned out and plotted and controlled a lot of times, but there's such a role for serendipity, right? It's
3: completely opportunistic. We have this very specific idea of what we think the scientific method is. Um, but so m- much more often than not, I think we're just being kind of completely opportunistic of what what data presents itself, what tools, what instruments we have. Uh, this is kind of a similar, very similar you know, case to what opportunity provided is. So much of it is just opportunistic and, and making do with what you have while you have it.
2: I think that's the beauty of science, is that it's really driven by curiosity. Some people are critical of science and that you can spend hundreds of thousands, millions, billions of dollars on something that is not directly applied. So yes, this scientific research may not come up with a cure tomorrow or it may not fix climate change today. But that's the beauty is that you're you're just discovering what's out there and you don't know where it's going to lead.
0: You know, one of the things that Opportunity did was... Um, you know, Julie was talking earlier about a lot of times people don't recognize the value of doing science that's just there to establish science and not there maybe to be translational in any way or not there to give us great medical discoveries, but just to, to make the baseline. But what Opportunity did on what is relatively a small budget is it just kept producing science after science after science. And I think there's probably very few people in the United States of America maybe in the world who would look at that and go like ah oh, that was a waste of money because it got so much bang for its buck I and mean, i think there's probably a lesson there for a lot of researchers about squeezing every inch of life out of whatever grants or or collaborations that you have because that's the way you convince people that what you do has value
2: i think the next rover will have many technological advantages and analyze things more But I see where you're going. There is this drive in science to do the next sexy thing. You want to catch people's attention, and you want people to believe in you because you have these forward-thinking ideas that, you know, supposedly no no one else is doing. You know, taking on risky projects is rewarded. But taking on risky projects is risky, and often they fail. There was some interesting studies that were done a while ago on the most cited papers in, in science. And the most cited papers were these papers that established a methodology that was used over and over and over and over again by scientists all across the world. It wasn't the next sexy thing. It was these workhorses that keep producing.
0: If you want to be in the news today, maybe a sexy topic is the way to go. But if you want to be a really influential scientist, creating a methodology and creating the baseline information is, is the way to go. That's so critical to
3: what we do. There's a lot of those types of projects in both the, the natural and the social sciences. They're incredibly uh, essential to understanding changes over time, to identifying emerging threats. And a lot of these types of programs are increasingly being threatened by lack of funding or being systematically dismantled. Um, the National Ecological Observation Network each year has, is fighting for funding from Congress. These types of, of long-term monitoring projects are, are vitally essential to most of the research that goes on uh, in the biophysical and social sciences, um, but they're just kind of taking for granted in, in most cases.
0: Let's come back to Earth, but let's keep talking about robots. There was an article in Science News magazine this month that caused a lot of conversations about the role of robots, or perhaps even if there is a role for robots in building relationships with students. And according to the article, customizable, endless patient robot tutors could soon be on the way to provide students with one-on-one attention in crowded classrooms. As a futurist, I loved this. As the husband of an elementary school teacher, I'm scared. What do you guys think?
2: I also have two minds about it. So, you know, what this body of work was showing was that kids can form real attachments with these little robots that they can put in classrooms that can help kids learn to read. That can help kids, um, you know, work on very specific skills. But the beauty is that it can give this child the attention that they may need, that they may not be able to get from their teacher when the teacher is in charge of thirty kids. So you can really see the value, um, and they were able to show that through some scientific studies um, that you know these kids actually like emotionally responded to these robots. So that's cool it's also kind of scary, right? I mean, these kids are in their formative years. They're learning how to interact with the world. And if their world is a world where robots can substitute for people, that's a little unnerving to me.
1: So I could see where this is like really, really good, especially for kids who are homeschooled or you know what if a kid's really sick or a kid has disabilities or maybe just the kid just needs some extra one-on-one time. But I feel like It's very controversial for myself. It was really interesting, but I'm still kind of torn.
0: Jordan, you've taught classes before, right? You're you're a teacher-teacher. Can a robot do what you do? Maybe not now. (laughs) Let's think, do you think a robot can do what you do 20 years from now, 25 years from now?
3: Uh, That boss listening right now. Um, (laughs) I think most of the research that, research that that we read about in this article noted that these robots really weren't Designed or they're not intended to replace teachers, um, but there's you know seeing what kind of s- supplemental education that they can provide. Um, this idea of you know AI informed robots to to teach children really kind of puts them in control over what they are experiencing. So you know if these get to a stage where they're almost customizable and the AI is actually smart enough to pick up on the developmental process of each individual child, I think that could be, you know, like really powerful for ensuring that the the children that are learning at different rates are, are getting the more targeted material. It's an initial step into what AI can actually do to form education in the U.S.
0: A lot of these in-class robots that are already being used have fur on them. They make them fuzzy, like a stuffed animal. And I think there's got to be like, there's something about having things that we can hold, that we can touch, that that feel soft to us, that feel more lifelike, that even if we are going to go the route of AI, we as humans still need.
2: That's something that struck me, too, um, in this, this article that was in Science News. You know, it made me wonder, it outlined an example where this child was working with the robot and then gave the robot a big hug. I mean, <laughs> it was adorable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's amazing. And I think that's key to making this work. I mean, it's a machine, but you do need to add some sort of human or emotional element to it. Um, I think to engage the kids in the first place, or anyone. I mean, if you think to the Opportunity Rover, right? I mean, it's a Little Miss Perfect. I was actually looking at the NASA website and I was looking at some of the mission logs from, um, actually it was Spirit. You read these logs and it's like, Spirit moved 10 feet, Spirit examined a rock, Spirit took a nap. So, I mean, there's there's NASA right there, you know, telling the story of this little robot, you know, like it's like it's a person. That's been engaging for all of us to think of it this way, and it's part of what makes it interesting.
0: It also causes things to feel more sad when when things finally fail, when opportunity goes bad. This is also a case with one of the other stories I wanted to talk about this week, which is a rather sad story. The London Zoo was hoping, as part of its conservation mission, to breed two rare Sumatran tigers together. Uh, as zoos do, they anthropomorphize these tigers. One was named Asim, the other was named Maladi. And after spending 10 days working to introduce the tigers to one another safely in cages that were placed side by side, they figured it was time to let them meet in the flesh. And the male tiger, Asim, attacked and killed the female tiger. And I suppose you could say this is part of like the circle of life. Tigers in the wild do this occasionally. They'll kill and even cannibalize other tigers. But it's dreadful news for this zoo and really for zoos everywhere that are involved in breeding ostensibly for the conservation movement. Were you all surprised by this story? Was it depressing? Was it shocking? I mean, it's depressing at one level, right? But there's probably a grander level there, too.
1: The whole thing is really just horrific. But I was surprised, but I wasn't surprised. It is just so rare to hear that happening.
0: It may be surprisingly shocking because we don't usually think about these things happening, but these things do happen. They happen in the wild and they happen in captive breeding situations. And right. that's part of the science. That's part of the conservation, un- unfortunately, perhaps.
2: It's surprising to read just because you think of the graphic nature of it all. And this tiger mauling another tiger and, and killing it is is pretty brutal especially when you think of it in this controlled environment. I mean, you can see, obviously, what the zoo is trying to do. They're trying to perpetuate the species. And and in order to do that, you have to bring tigers from different gene pools together What this also shows is that you can't predict everything. As much as we study animals and we think we know what we're getting into, in the end, they're animals and have a mind of their own. And there's no way that we can control what they do or even predict what they do. And that's what this is showing, which I think is interesting.
0: Finally today, a recent study from Brown University concluded with perhaps the unsurprising finding that women computer programmers have often been denied the credit that they really deserved in studies published in the journal Theoretical Population Biology. But not just that journal. This is a a pretty well-known phenomenon at this point. Troublingly, as programming became masculinized from the 1970s to the 1990s, the number of women who were involved either as authors or even in the acknowledgments went way down. Uh, Again, this isn't a problem limited to programming. One recent study found that even though women now outnumber men in higher education, we're still likely 16 years away from the point at which women will get as many papers published as men. And in certain fields of science at the current rate of change, it could take 250 years to even the playing field in the highest profile journals. Women get just a quarter to a third of first author bylines. Rachel, you recently had your first, first authorship, I think, right? What What do we do about this?
1: Funny, because even as a young scientist, this is actually wasn't something I was even really truly aware about until about high school or college. Some scientists are really picky about having certain authors be on their paper. You know, they don't care if you did a little bit of work or how much you did. You know, sometimes they just won't even put you on it, which is quite unfortunate And you sometimes have to be the squeaky wheel to even be on there if you really want the credit. It's expected from your job to just do it and the credit comes later and that part hasn't really changed. But I'm really, really happy to hear that, you know, there's more women, not only just in the field, but also kind of getting credit for their work. And I think that a lot of that has also just been people's awareness.
0: I want to let our female guests both have the first and last word on this matter. But Jordan, I don't want to exclude you also, particularly because you run a lab, you work with female scientists and male scientists. What are you doing in your lab to make sure that your female scientists have equal access to publication and that that they have equal access to opportunity?
3: For my lab, it's really about recruiting um, and making sure that you have a, a diverse set of of interest, diversity of gender, diversity of ethnic backgrounds, diversity of of income, diversity of of ideation of interest and perspectives on how they see and want to do research. Just maintaining that diversity um, and ensuring that when you're recruiting students that that is a priority is a big step.
0: This story enraged me, and I'm not a woman. Did it enrage you?
2: Yeah. (laughs) This uh, resonated with me very, very, very strongly. And It's study after study is showing that there is a leaky pipeline. Um, A lot of women go into the sciences. A lot of women um, get graduate degrees. But then you keep looking up the ladder and there aren't that many women who are chairs in the science departments. Uh, There are not that many women who are deans and so on or publishing, you know, in the high impact journals and so on and so on. You can attribute it to a lot of things, but some of it does just come to implicit bias and attitudes. You know, like Jordan was saying, giving everybody an opportunity, um, giving them a shot, you know, believing in their potential is, is huge. I think there also does have to be some sort of guidelines or, um, you know, standards, uh, benchmarks that need to be put into place you know, like this article brings up, there's really no specific guidelines for who gets to be an author. I mean, do you have to have had a hand in writing the paper? Do you have to have a hand in um, giving an intellectual contribution to the project? Or could it be um, just, you know, without your hands, this work could not have taken place? I don't know what the answers are, but if we can set those guidelines, then that will make sure that everyone who should be an author is. Same thing can be said for chair positions and and, and different positions throughout academia. Another place we're seeing this is um, just people being invited as speakers at national conferences. And these things feed into each other. I mean, if you need those authorships to build up your resume, you need to be invited to give talks in order to have that visibility and build networks. And so all of these things have to come into place in order for um, women to have to be have an equal playing field as everyone else.
0: We're getting close to the end of our show. In the time we have left, maybe just about a minute each, I'd love to hear about a study or a science news story that you ran into this month and that you think more people should be talking about. Jordan?
3: Yeah, I'll start off first. Mine is not a specific science story, but more of a a political uh, story. Uh, The Utah State Legislature right now is in the process of passing a non-binding resolution that's uh, focused on ensuring that all children in Utah have uh, a right uh, to be outside and to experience nature. It's the Every Every Kid Outdoors um, Act. Uh, it's going through Utah State Legislature right now. Um, it really kind of speaks to the... Uh, Decades of research that have you know, shown the benefits of being outside—the physiological benefits, psychological benefits, social benefits—especially uh, to young children. For many of the same reasons why we think that they might really like playing with uh, with AI informed robots is because what, when they get outside, they're in a self of self discovery, and that's what it enables. So, um, so yeah, kudos to the Utah State Legislature for pushing that through uh, this year.
0: Rachel, how about you?
1: I thought this was really a really interesting study that just came out. It was produced by a graduate student named Guyan Harwood and his um, professor Gro Amden at Arizona State University. And they basically started to look at, um, it's a honeybee immunity study, and it's the potential implications for a honeybee vaccine to help increase honeybee populations. Um, I thought that that was a huge breakthrough. And basically, just to sum it up real, really quick, is that, like, using um, a 700-million-year-old protein. So it's super conserved, and it's actually found in other species and carries a ton of nutrients um, needed in offspring and, like, in eggs. And so they found that honeybee queens can actually pass immunity to their larvae using this protein, and it it vaccinates the baby bees from uh, potential pathogens. And on top of that, the protein is actually found in rural jelly, which is produced by worker glands, and passed on to baby bees baby queens, so it's kind of this like amazing vaccination cycle and a colony-level immune response in honeybees, and I just thought that was really, really fascinating, um, and the potential applications is incredible. I mean, you could basically make a vaccine for potentially harmful diseases, um, give that to beekeepers to feed to queens and strengthen honeybee populations, which is a really massive breakthrough, so I'm really excited to see the progress on that.
0: And Julie?
2: Yeah, um, there's a fun study that came out um, that's looking at these marine snails. That are, uh, they're snails, so they're very slow-moving, but their prey are these fast-moving fish, and the way they get these fish is by secreting venom into the water, and this venom paralyzes the fish. What they found is that this venom contains a form of insulin that drops the blood sugar of these fish, so that, and then th- these fish can't move. And what's really cool is that this is looking like a type of fast-acting insulin um, that's different than the insulin that we have. And it's a potential source, could be a we can learn from what these snails are doing to possibly come up with a new medication for diabetics. So one of the problems with insulin today is that it is slow acting and it's difficult for patients to really factor in, oh, I'm going to eat this, I'm going to exercise, you know, by the time this insulin kicks in, this is the amount that I need. Well, if they can get learn from these snails on how to make a fast acting insulin, then it could um, relieve some of those problems with it insulin they have today. What I love about this is that nature has already done all these experiments and all we need to do is find those answers um, and we can learn from them.
0: That is a great last word. We're going to have links to all of those stories on our website, but we're going to have to leave the discussion there. Rachel Kaspar, thanks for joining us again on Undisciplined.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And Jordan Smith, it was great to see you again. Yeah, thanks, Matthew. And Julie Kiefer, thanks for coming on, and I do hope you'll come back.
2: Oh, I'd love to. Thanks for having me.
0: You can get a recording of this show and all of our programs wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at undisciplined. We recorded today from the KCPW studios at beautiful Library Square in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nathan Plant. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.
3: familiar places that this heart of mine embraces all day through